Okay, so since you gave me grief right before this podcast, while you were in the bathroom, I looked at your Instagram stories. It doesn't tell me anything more about where you were, though. It's just like some nice photos. So I don't know what I don't know what you went here. I looked. Oh, I don't know. It, you saw no, you, you saw you saw a very nice sunset. Yeah, I cheated though. There's definitely a visco preset somewhere in there. This is Making It Up, a podcast where we tell you what's happening in creative culture and why it matters. I'm Sharice Poon, and my co-host is Eugene Tan. We don't always have all the answers, but we try our best to reach a conclusion that adds value to the conversation. If you like this podcast, please share an episode with a friend. We really appreciate it. So thank you again to Eugene for recording at 1 a.m. Also, disclaimer, right at the top, one of my housemates is preparing for a party tonight. So there is lots of loud noise downstairs. Is the party at your flat? The party is going to be at the flat. But it's not supposed to start until after this recording ends. But she's like preparing. So maybe you go first because I've been going first for the last few weeks. Okay, sure. So my subject this week is called Everything is Amazing, But Nothing is Ours. And it comes from an article written by Alex Danko. And really where I came onto it is from the Dense Discovery newsletter. This article was written by Alex Danko, who is a Toronto-based writer and a VC-ish person who most recently worked at Social Capital, an organization that works with entrepreneurs to, quote, solve the world's hardest problems. Just attributing who the author is of this. And it's a really good article and deserves a full read. Oh my God, it's so funny that you also mentioned that because I have this point in my piece today where I'm like, hey, we should definitely give more props to the people that write the pieces. Yeah, because I didn't come up with this is the thing. And like, I'm actually going to read a bunch of quotes because I was like writing the notes for this and I don't have a better way to put it than essentially what Danko writes. So I just think it's worth a complete read, honestly. But this is the summary version. The article is called, like I said, Everything is Amazing But Nothing is Ours. And it's about how technology has evolved to be all about access at the expense of ownership. And that's it in a nutshell. And it opens with a bit of an anecdote about Dropbox, Danko wrote in 2015 about how Dropbox is this ultimate file product, but that files is not actually what the internet is going to be all about in the future. And that's proven to be true because Dropbox since 2015 has had a negative 4% annual return based off of its valuation and where it is right now. And Danko wrote this, I'm going to read this quote, files are discrete objects that exist in a physical place. The internet is pretty much the opposite of that. Dropbox might be the pinnacle of file management, but Slack is the beginning of what comes next. I don't think files are going to completely disappear, not anytime soon anyway. They'll certainly still exist as data structures, deep inside our servers and our phones for a very long time, and yet most people will be indifferent to their existence. And so he wrote that in 2015. So this article is actually a bit of a kind of a follow-up article to that prediction that he made And he says he was reminded of it because Yahoo Groups recently shut down. And when it was shut down, they erased 20 years worth of content. And it was a reminder to him that with modern technology, we sacrifice ownership over our spaces and our history and our communities, which I think we've talked about a lot as well, individually, like you and me, the importance of owning the platform that you're on. So a little bit more about the internet even though I think most of this stuff will be self-evident once I say it. Software used to be about skeuomorphism, where the digital world replicated the physical world. So files came from the idea of actual physical like manila folders. But then since 2010, as people mostly use their mobile instead of their computers, and then we have more and more users who've never lived without the internet, skeuomorphism didn't make sense anymore as a metaphor for design and for function. So really, everything now is reimagined as a service. And all of the databases, links, and logic behind things are hidden 
in order to reimagine things as this frictionless service to consumers. And so here's another really good quote about this. He wrote, we love services. Services free us to be pure consumers, seeking exactly what we want for as little friction and overhead as possible. So long as everything works, trading ownership for access is an attractive deal. Everything under the hood just gets magicked away and provided for us as a service. No files, no updates, no maintenance, just access. So in short, convenience. Yeah. And actually, it reminded me exactly of that article we talked about a long time ago by Tim Wu in the New York Times. Yeah. Yeah. About how maybe we need to stop being so lazy, essentially, to stop giving priority to convenience. Yeah. Here's a question for you. What do you think has been the push towards this overabundance of convenience? Do you think it's innate, like like psychological, or do you think it's a byproduct of culture? That's a really interesting question because I feel like tech evolved in this way where the people making tech were really focused on thinking, how do we make this easier for the user? And maybe from the get-go, that priority was wrong. And instead of thinking of like, how can we make this easier, we should have been thinking about what brings the most value. Like just the question of asking like, what is the most convenient thing is just allowing a user's sort of innate desires to control themselves, like their urges. But I just feel like from the beginning, even when you were designing a website, like where a button was placed, you thought about, okay, what was, what is the easiest placement instead of like what actually gives the user the greatest value? Yeah. Well, I, I guess, I, I mean, I kind of baited you with this because I have a point of view on this as I always bait you. Th- thanks, Eugene. For me, I, I've, I definitely think we've been pushed to really double down on convenience because it allows for greater efficacy. And by doing that, we've sort of opened the door towards just basically pursuing convenience at all costs, right? And I, whether, that's a, whether that's a byproduct of economic models, just like the pressure, societal pressures of everything. I mean, I, this is not to push this conversation any given way, but I think that we didn't know how convenient things were until after it took over our lives. Like, I don't think people ever retroactively look at things and think it was that inconvenient. Like Google Maps yeah. right now is yeah. super convenient, but I don't know if I necessarily was saying I hate maps. But I don't really follow what you're saying here. You're saying that we were pushed towards efficiency, but you're also not really saying like why that is. Oh, I mean, I know it's I don't want to talk about it in great depth so much as because I think we know exactly what pushed us there. Like we basically were told we need to do more. We need to achieve more. We need to be more efficient as as workers, as employees. And that itself was the reason why, you know, we pushed convenience. So essentially, spend as little amount of time as possible doing anything so that you can spend more time working. Exactly. Right. Why do you think we have so many food delivery systems? Yeah, that's one of them too. Exactly. A metaphor for this service is that even the things that used to be so self-evident where you went to the grocery store to get groceries and you went to the record store to buy music albums is no longer part of our lives. Instead, we have like Fresh Direct and Deliveroo and Spotify. And so all of this can happen without us moving, which means we can sit at our computers and do more work. Yeah. It's kind of like, why do some companies offer lunch? Why do they offer a games room? Yeah. I think that is the subtext here, but Danko does go on to talk more about how this is not great for tech, how this is not good for technology as a product. Yeah, I think it's related, but yes. Um, So what he wants to talk about is how in the past, when we had physical items, the thing that was fragile was the item itself, right? So for example, this is an example he gives. It used to be that we all drove our own cars. So if you were late to dinner, you might say, sorry, I'm late. The car broke down. 
Instead, nowadays, because none of us drive and we all take Uber or ride-sharing apps, it would be, sorry, I'm late, the car got lost. And so I think that's a great metaphor because he was saying it made him think about, well, what is the difference between those two versions? In one, you own the car and the car breaks. In the other one, you don't own the car. You're out of control. You don't have control over the car anymore and it gets lost and it loses direction. And so he says, worlds of scarcity are made out of things. Worlds of abundance are made out of dependencies. So the world we live in now with tech, with delivery services, ride-sharing apps, etc., is a world where everything is dependent on each other. And when it works, it can be really efficient, like you said, but also we are paying for that with complexity. So the world that we live in now with all these dependencies is super complex. We give up our agency over things to a system that we can't even see. And it's easily broken because if a hundred things are linked to each other and one breaks, then the whole thing goes down. Mm -hmm. A question he poses, a question I'm curious about is where can we find spaces that are separate from this movement of technology towards services and dependencies? Like, is it still possible to find spaces that are, that feel solidly like ours, that we have ownership over it? we have ownership over i mean this is a very classic open internet versus walled garden argument isn't it it's like hey facebook instagram basically all social media platforms versus the open web which is like me firing up you know a server and creating my own website via wordpress kind of what making's on right now mm-hmm. right and we have control of that and i've talked about this a little bit actually in terms of the limitations of CMS really strip away any sort of identity, any sort of, I guess, nuance, because you have to fit everything within their container, Mm -hmm. right? So those are the places where I think we have ownership, but then what do you give up? I mean, you give up eyeballs because most people aren't trying to discover and figure stuff out on the open web. Although I think it will get better. Like it actually might just swing back. Yeah. But I think in general, it's challenging because most people, like if you open up your, what's that app called in on your iPhone, the one that logs all your app usage, like obviously those top time. five, to, yeah, those top five apps for sure are going to be something platform related, something walled garden related. Yeah. I think though that it goes beyond, you know, social media platforms and websites. I also think about like, We've talked a lot about subscription services, and I know that we still wound up on subscription over paying for something, but there was something really nice about owning a piece of software and having that be an, a thing that you could use without the internet and that you could move it around and you knew that it was always going to be yours if you just had the file or the CD or whatever it was, mm-hmm. or like on a USB stick. I'm not saying that I want to go back to that time necessarily. Like, I'm not saying we need to regress, but it is sort of like, is there a way to move forwards where we can have things that feel more like our own? And there must be a third option where, you know, there can be a service provided, but that you are still given ownership over something. Okay. So that it just doesn't, it doesn't just get taken away from you. I'm just going to jump right in and say that the one reason why we got pushed in a particular direction was because the financial models existed in the places that were just built up, right? Like It was just easier for you to go to YouTube, start up a YouTube channel mm-hmm. and create assuming good content, like get paid for it versus doing it on your own, Yeah, right? They had the built-in monetization, which maybe that's what I should have clarified when I said I think it's actually swinging back because the tools like a Patreon who just, you know, they just announced that they've enabled creators to earn $1 billion, mm-hmm. right? Like that's a big milestone. I th- actually beyond that, it was 500 million in the last year alone. Mm. So that's actually pretty impressive. And then you have Substack, which is sort yeah. of a newsletter, yeah. uh, monetization service tool. So I think that those are the things that will allow people to kind of strike off on their own. Yeah, I think so. So maybe that's actually... I think that's I, a good I, example. I'm, 
I think that's something you brought up that's really interesting because in general, you can only do something based off of passion for so long, like the majority of people, right? But once we build in the economic layers, it actually allows you to sustain yourself. Yeah. And that is the reason why people went to Instagram, like influencers used Instagram because that was a way for them to make money versus having their own WordPress blog, for example, which didn't have built-in monetization tools or just just didn't have the built-in audience, the same audience size, right? I mean, I think that there are some things where we live in a world of dependency that is fine for it to be that way such as like entertainment where things are leisure related okay like it's not as crucial that you maybe feel ownership like i don't really feel like i need to trade netflix for having a wall of dvds again right but i do think like patreon and substack and like kickstarter are good examples as well because like if you're a creator then you get a name list and emails and mailing addresses and things like that and that's something you can take with you as well and also something that goes into the real world so if you did want to quit patreon one day for whatever reason you you would still have this kind of database of like relationships and people that were are part of your community mm-hmm. yeah and i also think that what is interesting is whether we need to redevelop the feeling of what is tangible and what is something that is ours versus something that is out of our control and that we are simply being like rented access to. And I know that you and I talk about this a lot, so I know that can kind of sound like a dumb question, but I think that it's pertinent on a wider level that maybe we have become on a whole sort of desensitized to the fact that we don't own things. So if I understand correctly, what you're saying is that we need to look at the fullest of things that we either own or rent and see what is actually better off being owned versus rented. Like yes. actually make that clear division. Yes. And I think that is the link that I saw to your subject, which is this idea of there are things that we own and that's good. And there are things that we don't own and that's also fine. But just being able to you know, evaluate for yourself like whether this is a thing that i want to have full ownership of or i'm happy with like partial ownership or a sometimes ownership something like that yeah it's it's really funny because i mean this is something that will make the link even more evident even though i understand where you're going because this is kind of pushing into my article yeah and my story but there's an article that came out that really put at the forefront if we can rent something, is it actually better off? And the example they used was Rent the Runway, mm-hmm. which is, as it sounds like, you you can kind of have this revolving door of items for your closet, for your wardrobe. Yeah. One of the interesting things in this piece from L was a dissection of how much carbon is emitted with different ways of having goods acquired and that could be like rented or whatnot so there was an example where jose velasquez martinez the executive director of mit's supply chain management master's program and sustainable logistics initiative said that through some rough estimates an item ordered online and then returned can emit 20 kilograms or 44 pounds of carbon each way and spirals up to 50 kilograms for rush shipping. Mm. By comparison, the carbon impact of a pair of jeans purchased outright, presumably from a brick-and-mortar store, and washed and worn at home is 33.4 kilograms. Mm. So if you take that concept and then you look into what it looks like when I'm just renting a piece, right? Yeah. And actually, the fact that I have access to an infinite wardrobe and I can change it out every so often. I actually don't know the exact terms. I'm sure if you wanted to, you could change it every week, whatever it may be. So it might actually incentivize us to engage in more shipping. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So I, yeah, I I don't want to go too far into it. I'm just going to conclude. I'm just going to wrap up my subject and then we can dive fully into yours because we haven't been addressing it head on yet and we've been talking kind of mysteriously. So just to conclude, 
Danko gives two examples of things that he thinks are more stable and simpler and kind of uh, going in the ownership direction. And one is Figma, which is a multiplayer design software. And according to him, it doesn't believe in everything needing to be live all the time and online. And so it just feels more solid and easier to use. And something that you can trust is going to like be the same. It's kind of like older software. Well, the feeling of older software, even while being new. And the other example is the Bitcoin ecosystem as a example of something that is affecting how people think about ownership versus access. I'm just going to read his last quote. I'd love to see more teams embrace the idea that less friction isn't always best. If the current trend of technology is sweeping us in a direction of everything is amazing, but nothing is ours, technology that's actually yours could be the next great counter trend. So that's it from Danko and this subject. Cool. Should we move on then? Yeah, let's do it. Let's dive right into okay. yours. My article this week is from Bloomberg titled, New or Used, It's Still Luxury. It's an article co-written by Sarah Halzak and Andrea Felstead, both of whom are opinion columnists for Bloomberg. Their primary focus is on consumer and retail industries. I actually think, you know, I, I kind of alluded to it before, um, we should definitely give more shine to the writers behind these pieces because sometimes the publication gets all the credit for the good ideas people come up with. Mm-hmm. It's neither good nor bad, but I just think it's nice for people, individuals, to get recognized for their efforts, especially given that the net positive of someone, you know, an individual yeah. getting rewarded is a lot higher than, let's say, a big brand like a Bloomberg. Yeah, I agree. Yeah. So the general premise of this piece is breaking down the relationship between luxury, resell, and generational differences in consumerism. Mm. And for this particular discussion, I think it's worth noting that let's not go too deep. And I have in my notes here, quotation marks, too deep into defining luxury. Instead, let's just focus on it in its traditional core tenets, like exclusivity, quality, and high pricing. Like that's generally speaking what defines yeah, a luxury good. Yeah, I'm happy good. with that. Uh, I say this because obviously the conversation around luxury is evolving. It's fine. In this subject we're talking about that traditional definition of luxury so we've discussed at length all the different reseller platforms out there you know sneakers it might be goat or StockX. for fashion it might be vestiaire collective grailed etc or basically you can take something that's either pre-owned or new and sell it there you don't necessarily need to just buy something brand new from the store and then flip it like that day to make a profit it could be something that's been worn you know a handful of times for the last two years and you just want to get some money back for it. So returning back to the Bloomberg piece, early on, they established that despite the growth of reselling, there's actually a lot of interesting positive externalities that can be leveraged through reseller channels. Uh, and to give you an example of the opportunity, Boston Consulting Group and Alta Gamma suggest that each year from 2021 onwards, reselling will grow by 12% year over year versus just 3% for the primary luxury market. And by 2023, it's estimated that the second-hand market will be worth 51 billion US dollars. Um, so there's actually a part right after this that I thought was really interesting, this quote. And I'm just going to actually read it in its full because it kind of lets you understand the general sort of mindset of people, right? And how, how people are looking at this relationship between reselling and luxury. While prices on the resale market tend to be lower than retail, they're not so much lower that they appeal to a totally different customer. 
Jamie Merriman, an analyst at Bernstein, found that the median price of a Louis Vuitton bag on the real real was $1,025. That's a deal compared to the median $3,000 price her analysis found for new Louis Vuitton purses. But that still leaves the brand in a vastly different tier than, say, Coach or Michael Kors, whose new bags might cost $300 to $400. It's near enough that it may tempt some shoppers to trade up, but that's only a worry for accessible luxury brands. So basically, what we're saying is that the people buying on reseller platforms are the same people who are buying the luxury goods on the primary market. They're just kind of looking for a deal or looking for like an exclusive product or something like that. Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And it's, it's, I think what's interesting is that it solidifies the understanding that once you enter a certain realm of luxury goods, you basically lose a lot of people. So what I mean by lose a lot of people is that like just the affordability changes significantly. Like I think that, I mean, this is super obvious, but just to provide a little color to the point, it's like the number of people that can afford a $300 purse is significantly different than someone that can afford a $1,000 purse or a $3,000 purse. But yeah, I would say if you looked at the curve itself, it's not linear, right? Yeah. It's probably exponential. As in there's um, a huge amount of people, there's a very large number of people who are buying the 300 to $400 bag. And then it's like, a fraction of that is getting the $3,000 bag. Yeah. It's not like three times less people can buy the $1,000 bag or $900 bag. Yeah. Um, we're we're right. so good at math. <laughs> um, <laughs> so to continue onwards, one key component within primary luxury purchases is understanding the resale value of an item. In the article, they use the example of a Balenciaga city bag, which may retail for around $2,000 US but can be resold for $600 US. They pose a rhetorical question, is it worth the investment? Is, and this is, is, actually, is I, buying the $2,000 bag essentially you're saying? Like, let's say me. If I go shopping, I buy the $2,000 bag. If I know that it can be resold for $600, does that entice me more to buy the bag? Well, it's not even an investment. I think I have a bone to pick just with like how people justify fashion purchases as an investment. Yeah. Right? Yes. I completely agree with your bone because what it is, I'm not going to think of as an investment. I'm going to think, oh, I'm, I'm buying like a $1,400 bag. You're, you're basically going to be able to, you know, recoup about 30% of your money. Yeah. So that's not really an investment. Like no, no one would willingly go and invest in something if they knew they were going to lose 70% of it. No, right? precisely. Yeah. So anyways, that, that is the one thing I think people need to fundamentally change in terms of how they consume things. and stop going into it under the belief that you're going to make money off it because only a very small subset of things I believe you can actually wear and make money on it. You can't. There's so few things because, I mean, the, ar- so the article says so, this too. Especially in fashion. Especially yeah. in fashion. There is such a limited number of things that appreciate in value. Like, yeah, I think another one of the articles said even watches nowadays are not appreciating in value. So, yeah. To, so just, this this is maybe the thing that an investment. Let's put a pin in it and come back to that point okay. because I think this is sort of where it, I start really questioning where this is all going. Okay, sure. Um, on that topic of quote unquote investment in a two thousand dollar handbag, this coincides with an article that was on the business of fashion that talks about the growth around fractional ownership. We've actually talked about this yeah. in a previous making it up with Otis. And it's interesting because cultural items are now seen as investment tools for our generation, right? Yeah. Like in the past, I think that you wouldn't look at something like a cause painting or a Rolex GMT as an investment product, but now they are. Okay. I suspect that you're going to get into this, but I don't consider that to be an investment. Mm, I think some can be, but it really just depends. Like, I think that ultimately what we should discuss and come back to is just really what our thoughts are and how this could play out. I think that people who are using those other platforms like Otis and, hang on, let me find the other one. 
uh, relay. Yes. The people who are chipping in for items on Otis and Relay are not doing it really because they think in 10, 20 years, their partial ownership of a cause sculpture is going to get, you know, when they cash out is going to make them a lot of money. It's really more about that cultural societal value of having part ownership. Mm -hmm. Like I would say that is a primary reason. Did you not yeah. think so? I mean, that that's what I think. Why they're doing so well. Yeah, I think so too. I think so too. And then I guess to tie this all together, I, I mentioned at the very beginning, one of the key factors within this whole reselling paradigm is the generational differences between consumers, right? So in short, younger consumers consider resale value important because I think as you get older, resale value of products you really like becomes less and less important. And the reason being is, I think first you care less about fashion. I've seen it with a lot of people, um, I guess my age, where you were really big into fashion and then soon you just stop caring, right? And you buy stuff you really like and you'll wear it for a long time or you just don't have time to resell it. Like even the very idea of needing to go to the post office yeah. to ship something is annoying to you. Yeah, I mean, we've talked about this before, but caring less about fashion is so interesting because I don't think that... As you get older, you care. It's not like you then become sloppy, okay? Like, we obviously still like to look, you know, presentable. Stylish. Yes, stylish yeah. to some degree. But we're not so concerned anymore about a more performative element of fashion that involves being, like, spending a lot of time in it, reading about it, acquiring certain items, like you said, like, spending time reselling, finding that community aspect of fashion. And I think that's because as you grow older, you find the things that you used to get from fashion in other places. Yeah, exactly. Uh, there's some other bits within this about reselling that I'll just touch upon. And if you really care about it, you can go and read up on it. But it just talks about how some luxury brands are directly acquiring reseller platforms. Mm -hmm. And it can be an interesting move. I mean, if you buy a watch reseller platform and you yourself put out a brand of watches um there's access to information like data 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 i don't know why i said data but also just the ability to even have the optic that you care about sustainability yeah yeah i mean i think the conclusion of this article was really that reseller platforms are good for luxury business. Yeah. It may seem counterintuitive because it means that people are on the reseller platforms supposedly instead of primary luxury markets, but that's not true. Actually, the existence of a healthy reseller market that is, you know, critically reviewing items benefits the primary market. So that's kind of the Bloomberg conclusion on this. Yeah. So maybe we can get back into some of the underlying ideas that I think are interesting around this. And I've talked about it in various back channels. You know, one thing that I, I think is interesting is if you could look at how products end up selling, I think the data actually is probably starting to accumulate in terms of, let's say this product drops on December 1st, what is the likelihood of it hitting its highest price? And then what does that price look like for the six months afterwards and what does it look like in five years right so i think that's like interesting data to have access to and to, to kind of look at because i think that one thing that drives the price of some of these things is just like is it relevant in culture but if we become increasingly better at marketing do you think there's a chance that there will always be something bigger and better that will end up, that will push us to forget about something very quickly. Hmm. And in doing so, it won't be able to sustain its value. So to use an example, if Travis Scott's putting out an Air Jordan 1 um, this month, right? It's reselling like crazy. And then, and let's say that a few months later, he puts out an Air Force 1 and then everyone forgets about the Air Jordan. Yeah, like, I mean, that's... Is there a chance that that happens? Oh, definitely. I mean, I think that part of whether something remains relevant is how exclusive we perceive it to be. 
and so many things are no longer genuinely exclusive. And we have this like expectation of brands now that they will keep re-releasing things that were previously popular. And so that detracts from any increase in value that those previous items would have gotten. Yeah. And then the actual supply of things also increases. Yes. So what I mean is that like every month there is theoretically the hottest sneaker of the month, yep. right? Yeah. And that itself will be, and if you start adding it all up, like in 36 months, aka three years, there's going to be 36 yeah. sneakers that are all competing. And, right? and a lot of them are widely available, like you said. Like they're not genuinely difficult to buy comparative yeah. to so, what I think of as being like actually difficult. I, I made this point in a, in a conversation and if you know that the resale value of your bag is this, right, but the bag you actually really like doesn't have any liquidity in the sense that there's not enough demand for people to buy this on the secondary market, then will you actually pick the one that you know can resell mm. with greater confidence? I mean, it really depends how strapped for cash you are, right, in general, because I Okay, I think using the word investment is wrong, but if it has a greater resale value, then you'll perceive of it as like not spending as much money on something straight up. Mm -hmm. And so that, like I said, that's kind of thinking about, okay, maybe I'll get this $2,000 bag because I know I can resell it for 600. So I'm really just spending 1400 versus instead of spending 2000 on a bag that I might like better. Yeah. So my question to you so is... So I'm not thinking of it... Like, yeah, I think it could affect my decision, but at least for me, I'm thinking of it as like a financial decision. But then the trickle-down effect is that what happens if this bag, the $2,000 bag that has no resale because it's a new model, gets canceled? And suddenly, all you really have is a consolidation of, we just put out the, the models that sell the best on the secondary market. Oh, interesting. Well, then, I mean... That's kind of what I'm getting at. I mean, it must start somewhere, right? It's the reason why they sell on the secondary market is because people want them. So, Correct. some people, enough people wanted it to begin with to give it value on the secondary market. And that might convince another group of people who weren't originally into it to get it as well. And that demonstrates like even greater interest. So I guess what you're saying yeah. is that the resale market is like, what's the word? When things are combined together, it's like gathering all of our tastes into one direction. Yeah. Or it could a have consolidation that effect. Of taste. Yes, a consolidation of taste. Yeah. Thank you. Yeah. Instead of me going for the bag that I genuinely like that doesn't have a resale yeah. value. That's kind of sad. Exactly. That's kind of sad. That, that's kind of what I'm getting at, right? When you have access to markets and this, this data is like in front of you, this is what I'm curious to see play out. Well, here's one more thought before we close off. If you know that you're acquiring something for six months or 12 months and then you plan on reselling it again, that's kind of like partial ownership. Yeah. In the same way that like we were talking about in my subject, I was just thinking about my subject again and what we talked about, like renting versus owning. And the resale market is like temporary ownership in a way that people are getting more used to the idea of owning something not forever, but for a short period of time. And that's pretty interesting, just in terms of like consumption habit. I mean, that's another way of looking at it. If I, if I, I mean, that's a very expensive rental proposition i mean let's use the balenciaga one right like yeah. under what circumstance would it be worth it for you to you know rent this bag for a reasonable amount monthly well but like it's i don't know it's like in between rental and ownership because it's like owning with this knowledge of reselling but i can own it for as long as i want yeah and then i guess what you're saying is like the rental price goes down the longer i hold on to it yeah no, I was just commenting on how uh, the relationship between our subjects is this idea of like, instead of owning a physical thing forever, um, you people 
are more accustomed to the idea of temporary, partial, rental, etc. Yeah. Well, maybe let's cap things off and think about what are the things that we should own and what are the things we should rent. Oh, let's come back next week. Talk about that. Let me um let me rephrase it. Okay, my revelation is understanding the relationship curve as you get older. So this when you're so, younger, so, I think this it's is a much more complicated way of putting it than the way you put it initially. <laughs> All right, so if <laughs> this is my second take in it because the first take that I that I told Cherie sounded super abrasive. Uh, anyways, basically what I'm trying to say is that it it's really beneficial to be the nice guy and to take in as much experience and to meet as many different kinds of people as you can when you're younger so that when you do get older, it's so much easier to filter out the bullshit and know who you want to hang out with and who you don't want to hang out with. <laughs> Good advice, Eugene. Good advice. Oh, yo, man, you can laugh, but you told me off the mic this is exactly how you feel about some stuff. Yeah, yeah. No, I'm I'm laughing just because of the way you put it. I put it in a way more gentle way, but you're totally right. Um, yes. I think what it is, is that you get older and you only have so much like mental capacity and emotional capacity to spare. And that, that just has to go to the people you care about, you know? Yeah, that, I agree. I totally agree. Yep. Reserve your energy. Besides, when you're young, you just have so much more energy. I have a classmate who did a legit all-nighter before a recent deadline. As it did not sleep at all. No, not a single minute did not sleep. And then went in the next morning to hand in the, the thing that was due. I was just like, I could never have done that. I just, I can't do it anymore. Well, not anymore, but you also wouldn't be dumb enough to wait till the last fucking moment to do it. <laughs> so, I mean, like. <laughs> yeah, it balances out. It balances out. Like, come on. No, no, totally right. I would not. I would not for a second applaud someone who stayed up overnight. Oh, and, and no. Like, Yo. I'm not. I applaud is the wrong word. I'm more impressed with the actual physical stamina to be able to do that and not have like passed out in the street because that's what would have happened to me. But in terms of time management, that is completely the wrong way to go about things. Yeah. What is my revelation? Oh, as a, as a mini revelation, I've learned that I really like kale. The vegetable. The fuck? Kale, like, the vegetable. Yeah, I know, but it's like... Do you not like kale? It's fine, but I just wouldn't say I love kale. I don't... I've never had much kale before. And then recently I've started trying these different recipes that involve kale, and I really like them. So that's my... Isn't Kale isn't. Uh, I want to know if kale is in the same family as Chinese broccoli. You mean bok choy? No, 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 gailan. Oh, oh, it's called Chinese kale it, as well. So I had obviously we've had Chinese kale before we had the regular kale. Yeah, that's true. I like gailan as well. Yep. Um, no, that's just my mini. Mini thought. Um, Tanya told me that she asked you questions about musical anhedonia. All right. Should we answer this on air? Sure. All right. Oh, so recapping last week's episode on music anhedonia. One of our faithful listeners, Tanya R., had a few questions to ask me that I will, I guess, answer on air. <laughs> it sounds weird because obviously this is not live. So, she asked, do you have music that incites nostalgia? Like, does it remind you of a certain stage in your life, or a holiday, or a decade? Yeah, I would say that in high school, all that music was pretty much of the era. So, if you heard it now, you would still, would you feel nostalgic for that time yeah, in high like, school? Yeah, like, I remember, 
I remember my grade nine, which call it end of your graduation song was Green Day, Time of Your Life. <laughs> so if I played Green Day, Time of Your Life, or you, came, or you went into a shop and you heard it, it would take you back. I would probably remember the video. Okay. Yeah, I mean, I don't really think of it. Um, I mean, the most impactful song of my youth was definitely Rough Riders Anthem by DMX. Everyone knows that I have this ongoing sort of respect, admiration, I don't know, love of DMX, but also because I was like a kid that grew up in rural Canada, and here I'm watching this dude ride quads, which I think maybe because quads and rural Alberta actually were quite connected. I think the question, though, does hearing Rough Riders DMX incite a nostalgic feeling in you and not just this rational thinking oh yeah i really admired dmx you, sorry can you repeat you it can you repeat the question but can you repeat the question but it's just minor no it's rough riders anthem oh my god get it right <laughs> okay i think the question is more of if you were to hear rough riders anthem does it give you a feeling of nostalgia and not just a mental memory of this time when i really admired dmx whoa, whoa i still admire him but sorry it I'm sorry. doesn't give me any sort of emotion like i'm not overcome with emotion okay well i didn't say overcome even now i didn't say overcome do you feel <laughs> any emotion <laughs> even now like i don't even get excited about it when i hear it anymore okay Second question. Yeah. Do thematic music pieces like famous movie scores elicit emotion during a movie? This is the one I was really interested in. So, like, for example, in Jaws, you know, when it goes dun, dun. Like that kind of thing, et cetera. Does the music no, that I just, goes with the scene no. add to it? What? Oh, my God. Even though I already knew it. It just... This, the music simply contributes to the the scene itself, right? It's like a layer on top. It doesn't actually emotionally heighten it for me. It doesn't heighten... Wait, so you must be really good at watching scary movies. No, but it depends because scary movies, if they're like jump jump movies, jump scare movies, then... But you know um, how scary really movies, like when it's quiet, they have that like really spooky music. Oh, yeah, no, that doesn't really... Oh, that, my like, goodness. I, this is blowing my mind. Um, the, the, one time, the one time where I actually got... Actually, okay, no, there's two things in terms of that sort of emotional resonance. I remember when I was like in grade eight or nine, I had this existential thought about death. And then I was lying in bed and I was listening to the radio and there was like this Savage Garden song that came on and I got really sad. But that was like literally the extent of music ever emotionally moving me. But you were also already thinking about death. <laughs> yeah. I think I was thinking about my parents dying or something. Oh, sad. Yeah. Okay. Have you been to live music concerts that are really powerful in any way for you? No. Ha but have you been to a mm, live music concert? Yeah. I mean, I've gone to music festivals. Just covering that. You know? just, just so it to be clear. Okay. Uh, last question. Did you play a musical instrument growing up? No, was not capable of playing a musical instrument. Did you instrument. try? Uh, I think I tried, but then I was like, I think I kind of had this jock mentality of like, this is stupid. I see. So it wasn't even because you had musical hanedonia. It's just because you thought music was dumb. Yeah. I do find myself getting very emotional over sports, though. Like, not even like the outcome of sports but people's pursuit of excellence in sports wait are you telling me that you actually feel emotions related to sports and it's not just like your yes. brain realizing that people are doing really amazing things so like just like literally a few hours before this when i was coming over i was watching this documentary on the hong kong national lacrosse team in preparation for the world championships and I was like, huh, these people really care about lacrosse and like 
I mean, I could kind of relate to that. So, okay. So maybe the emotions that you would have felt relating to music got replaced, got rerouted to sports. Yeah. But do, it was, do movies, do fiction movies about sports teams get you more emotional? No, because it's fictional. I don't really get, like, yeah. Has to be real. But life. you know what's interesting? But wait, okay. I wasn't Are even, you really into those, like, underdog, okay, real life underdogs in sports ch- triumphing stories? Yeah, I mean, I generally cheer for the underdog, if that's what you mean. But when I was watching that documentary, I actually wasn't even listening to it. I was reading subtitles. I didn't have headphones. Oh, interesting. So I was actually kind of surprised. Like, I couldn't hear anyone's voices. I was just watching people. Oh, well, I like that. I like knowing that. One thing that I've noticed is that I've become increasingly desensitized to music. So maybe when I was younger, I had more of this emotional connection with music. That has essentially disappeared like i don't even you said that like, in the last episode boring. yeah like it just it's nothing there's nothing there <laughs> it's fine i'm already used to this by now i think the craziest yeah. thing is that you can watch scary movies and not be as scared i wish i could do that That's a good place to cap things off for the day. If you are interested in hearing more about Macon, reading and listening to some of our stories focused on the sights and sounds of creative culture, you can visit us at Macon.com. M-A-E-K-A-N.com. You can also subscribe to us through your favorite podcast app and platforms. If you like this podcast, you can do us a huge favor by reviewing us on iTunes or sharing this podcast with a friend. Also, if you want to get in touch with us, you can email myself at sharice at makeit.com and eugene at makeit.com. We love hearing from you. I'm Eugene. I'm Sharice. And this is Making It Up.